0: Welcome to Happy Life Studios. I'm Steve, and that's when
1: you're supposed to say, and I'm Tony. And I'm Tony. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. I thought I was still a guest. <laughs> didn't take long.
0: we have enough of these now. Go we'll
1: visit Steve while you're a guest for like an hour, and that's it. <laughs> I don't know. You're waiting for me to introduce you. Yeah, that's how <laughs> I thought it was. That's what we've always done. Come on. Don't you know that you don't change things? Once you start doing it one way, that's how you do it. Always the same. Oh,
0: yeah. Like you don't like change. Like you're the person that likes it always to be the same. I do. Oh, my goodness. I have
1: a plaque in my office that says I love change. Change it back to the way it used to be. <laughs> I'm going to show you how to operate in a
0: spirit. This is Happy Life Studios. This
1: message is for you. This message is for you. This message is singular to you. It's not for anybody else. not hard get. not hard to get.
0: It's not, hard to get. It's not hard to understand. Now that's a great question. Does the
1: sun set high? Does the sun set high?
0: Welcome to Happy Life Studios.
1: Hey, are you happy? If you're
0: not, then why? If you're not, then why? We're here to help your life be happier. One of our happy lifers, by the way, gave me some good advice. He said, I need to um, explain more of who you are for those that are listening uh, and how you got started. And uh, so, you know, what do you think about that? Are you game for that? I think that was a pretty good idea. Sure. I feel like we've done this before. I kind of thought we did that before too. But the fact that this happy lifer, you know, he's listened to most of them, if not all of them. Huh. So... Um, the fact that he thought it'd be good for people to know you. And I i, right. I, I think it's good, too. I, we've recorded I, about a 200 of them in the car. Right, I know. And then another 100 that we've done on the Internet. And you couldn't use any of them. <laughs> we're kind of confused, here. <laughs> you know, we've talked so many times right. yeah. under the guise of uh, <laughs> Happy Life Studios. And I will say that, you know, I've, I've kind of interviewed you before, but it was always a shortened version, uh, a condensed version, because I knew we had a topic we wanted to get to that day. But I think it'd be cool for people to see who you really are because, number one, you're one of my best friends. Um, you're one of my favorite people on the planet. You're a very powerful man, and and you have your strengths and you have your weaknesses just like anybody. Um, I go out to Camp Daniel as much as I can, sometimes several times a year. Because it helps me get my brain right when I'm around you, and and I know you've got weaknesses too, like we all do. But um, you have a lot to offer, and your story is a it's a powerful story. So thank you, Joe Happy Lifer. That's actually his name, (laughs) not Happy Lifer. But that would be really weird, Joe. (laughs) I know. So anyway, Tony, why don't
1: you tell us a little bit of of who you are? Um. Well, I don't know. You said it's an interesting story. And I remember growing up in church and the missionaries would come or special speakers at church would come and they would have these incredible testimonies where they were on drugs and almost dead and living in the gutter and, you know, whatever given situation. And I used to sit in church and just feel bad, like I could never be up on a stage talking or I could never do anything real for God because my story is just boring because I grew up in a family that loved me. Uh, my parents didn't get divorced. I knew all my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents. Almost everybody's a Christian in my family. I was raised in a place of just incredible love, and um, I never had anything hard or bad truly happen. So I used to, that used to be a, big, a really big issue for me when I was a teenager. Now, you say that, but I think a lot of people that know your story would
0: disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a brother that went through some pretty horrific stuff. In fact, that's how Camp Daniel was even named, you know, was after your brother. So tell us a little bit about Daniel, the kind of guy he was and uh, the struggles that life brought him.
1: Well, my brother Daniel had a, a very rare neuromuscular disease, kind of similar to muscular dystrophy, like you would see on the Jerry Lewis telethon. He never grew muscle mass, so it's not like he lost his muscle. He, you know, when he was 20 years old, he probably weighed 60 pounds. Wow. And he would have been a man that was, if he could stand, he would have probably been about 5'9 or 5'10. Wow. So he was really thin. And um, I have a younger sister, Laura, and then he was the youngest in our family. And uh, he's three years younger than me. And uh, so with within the first year, my parents realized that there was he wasn't hitting certain markers physically and uh, took him in and then started doing tests and discovered that he had this neuromuscular disease where he just wasn't developing muscle tissue. Um, so that led to, he had severe, uh, breathing problems because of it. He had a very enlarged heart. He had scoliosis. Uh, we had an iron lung in our house. Um, most people, anybody younger than me generally doesn't know what a iron lung is, but it's a big steel tube, uh, that had positive and negative pressure that would help him breathe. And they used to use those in polio days and, um, so, and he was maybe twice a year, he'd get some kind of a respiratory situation and he would end up at Children's Hospital in Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh so we'd spend, you know, a couple of weeks uh, as a family down at the Children's Hospital downtown. But to be honest, like I didn't, it wasn't until I was probably 12 or 13 that I realized that our family might be different than other families because we were dealing with the issues of disability. It was just normal for you. Yeah, it was completely and utterly normal. I grew up with, and like my the fact that my brother had any issue, like you know, physical issues or whatever, that just never really. We just adjusted everything. And we just lived life, and I was fairly uh, innocent to it all. And I, I don't think people understand with the iron lung, but he basically he was in that tube, right? Um, he lived in that, or he'd sleep in there, so he'd have to be in there maybe ten, eleven hours a day. For most of his life, towards the last year and a half of his life, maybe probably about a year, he was in there all the time, 24 hours a day. Otherwise, he couldn't breathe at all. Wow. Wow.
0: Um, did you ever do normal brother stuff with him? I mean, did you, you guys ever wrestle? Did you ever fight? Did you ever, oh, yeah. um, did you ever feel sorry for him, or did, did that have nothing to do with it because he was your younger brother?
1: <laughs> um, I think there were rare moments where I felt sorry. I, I, to be honest, I probably felt more sorry for myself. I as As a teenager, I started dealing with the fact that I didn't have a disability and why that was, and really struggled with that question um but we lived a completely normal brotherly relationship. we fought a lot we um yeah it, it's hard for people to even grasp he was in a he had an electric wheelchair, so one example was I'd tease him and mess around or You know, I'd I'd smack him around. He'd run into me with his wheelchair, that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, So we had a a kitchen living room that had, like, they were connected, but there was a wall in the middle, so it was like a racetrack around it. And I smacked him one time and started running around through the living room and kitchen around this wall, and he was chasing me. And I came into the kitchen about the fourth time around and saw the refrigerator. So I ran, opened the refrigerator door, and kind of half got in the refrigerator thinking he'll never – get me because I'm in here. Well, he didn't even stop full bore. He just <laughs> smashed into the fridge door. Well, everything in the fridge, all the shelves, everything in it fell out, and I I fell onto the floor, and the door kind of <laughs> opened over the top of me, and when I looked up, I could see there was a giant dent, and it was bent, the whole door. And I, oh, no. I looked at him. We just stood, we sat there stunned for just a second, and then at the same time, we said, oh, you're going to get it. You're in trouble. <laughs> and uh <laughs> Um, so we had to explain that to my mom when she got home from work that day that we had destroyed the fridge. Well, it ended up costing us three, him and I had to come up with $300 to buy a new fridge door. Um, You know, I was
0: thinking, I was thinking you guys are probably scared to death of when dad got home and I thought, wait a minute, it wasn't even dad you had to be worried about. It was mama who you guys (laughs) had to be worried. Who are you more afraid of coming home, dad or mom and seeing uh, that?
1: A little bit of both. My dad made (laughs) us pay. My mom made us pay in a whole different way with, um, you know. So that was that that's the typical life we led. I mean, it was always it was we we're just as destructive as any two brothers were anywhere. And, and didn't you guys play football together as well? Yeah, we and that was when we were younger, too. We'd come up with like he'd, he'd roll around on the floor because he couldn't walk and he couldn't hold himself up sitting. And so that was his mode of moving around like a room on carpet would be to roll. And so I'd get on the floor and do the same thing. And we came up with we had little footballs. They throw it at homecoming at the high school and. We came up with our own game of football, and we came. We played wiffle ball in the basement because he could hold the bat kind of sideways while laying down, and, uh, you know, he hit certain things with wow. single dub or whatever, and this was all before video games came around, and once there was video games, and as we were older, we did a little bit of that because it was a way, we were very competitive in a lot of ways, right. but so we, you know, we did a lot of the typical stuff. The only difference became, like, when I got into high school and started playing sports and you know I played baseball and basketball football and he desired to do that but couldn't so he was became the manager of all of our teams and that type of thing um wow that's cool so he managed yeah. wow that's cool so, yeah life was normal typical so how did camp daniel come about then well it was kind of i remember being about 12 years old and this is going far back in the story but um, when I realized that my life was different was I can remember being in the emergency room and children's hospital, which for me, it, it was one of the most hellish places you could possibly go. Um, we'd often end up there in the night. And when you would go after hours into the, into the emergency room, at children's, you have all families with kids. You know, I remember one of the last times a, a kid had come in there and he had been burned. And I just like, I can distinctly remember just the utter sadness of that, place of that emergency room and, um, and then the whole hospital in general. So, um, I remember one year there was, a uh, an infant baby when he would be admitted to the hospital, he'd be in intensive care because he had all this medical equipment and there was a baby in the room next to us for, you know, we're there two weeks and for the first three or four days, nobody came to visit the first day there was two parents there. And then after that, nobody came to visit this baby. And then I remember coming in after school with my dad one night and, um, the baby was gone and just being like, where's, where's the baby? And, you know, we could both surmise the baby had died and like that, like that feeling of just that sad loss never left me. And, um, so that hospital had a big impact on my life and, and what families were going through and what people were going through. But, um, I can remember being 12 years old and standing right outside my brother's room, and he was not doing well that time, and was he could have died. Um, and I remember coming out. My dad was at, had to go to work, and I was there with my mom, and she came out and just started to sob. And I'm 12 years old, and my mom's a very short woman, so I was always taller than her from the time I was probably 11. Um, but I was holding her and comforting her, and um, and I can distinctly remember how hard and how it that was the thing that finally struck me that our life wasn't the same as other people's lives. Um, cause this was not, in my mind, wasn't typical that I didn't know. And my friends probably didn't comfort their mom like that. And, um, so from that time on life went on with this kind of foreboding possibility that Dan at some point would die. And he far outlived what the doctors thought he, he would be able to. And, uh, he passed away when he was 21 and, um, You know his his body just finally shut down. He had the enlarged heart and the breathing issues, and um, so I had just had been married a a almost exactly a year when he passed away. And my wife and I were kind of pursuing the dream of being artists and were kind of move up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan from Chicago. So we made we're making our way to Green Bay and rented a a, like upper flat from my grandparents. And uh, in that process is when he died. And um, about a month before he died, uh, before we moved to green Bay, we moved back in with my parents and moved into my old room in the basement. And it was, a about a six week period where I got to spend a lot of time with my brother. Um, because we knew the doctor had told us three to four months before he died that this was it. He wasn't going to make it through this one and he was going to die. So wow. we were dealing with that as a family. And, um, you know, there was a lot of good times, a lot of bad times, but it was, the perfect death, to be honest, in a lot of ways. We rehashed every bit of our whole lives together. We even made recordings of just us talking about things that happened growing up, Um which I still have. And um, so it was like extremely healing. And for me, I was grew up in the church, but I ha- always had an issue with trying to understand why I didn't have a disability and he did and listening to what they would preach from the pulpit and then looking at him sitting in a wheelchair in the aisle next to me during church like things didn't line up for me. I couldn't make sense of it all, and um, I, I didn't connect with church in a lot of ways. Being artistic and just felt on the outside. So it was when I became a young adult, I just was something I left behind. It was something that wasn't for me. But that six-week period in the bedroom with him proved to be life-changing in a lot of ways. That it made me think in ways that I had never thought before, and I heard things from him I had never heard. And and then also that process. Um, he, the weaker he got, the sicker he got, and he laid in this iron lung, which you're, you're on your back in this tube. There's a mirror above your head. You look in. You know, if you're listening to this, you should look up on iron lung just to get an understanding of what that looks like. Yeah. So he laid in there for almost a year. So we had to have nurses come in. So every night, a nurse would come to the house to stay in the room with him because he would have to ha- be suctioned through his mouth and such. Um, my mom needed rest, and um, but we had nurses that were coming in, and in during the night. And he could barely talk above a whisper, but somehow nurses were coming to Christ and getting saved, Um, which just for me, it it was not understandable that he was getting weaker, but somehow God was becoming more powerful in that process and things were happening that didn't typically happen. We were there for that six weeks. During that time, he woke up in the middle of the night one night and asked my mom to go downstairs and get me and she did and i came up and he said uh, asked wanted to ask me to do something and so he had grown up going to a camp for people with disabilities up in Minnesota and I never would go. My mom went, my dad went, he went, he went as a camper, then he became a speaker, and he kind of led worship, and I had cousins that went. All my family was involved going to this camp, and all my family went to youth camp uh, in Spencer Lake, Wisconsin, and uh, I never went to any camp, anytime. I was not interested, was not something I wanted to do, I didn't want to be told what to do, or have rules, or schedules, or any of that kind of stuff. So um, when he called me up to ask me this question, it was a pretty far-fetched thing. He was asking me to go to this camp in Minnesota where him and my parents had always went. Um, They needed the sound system, and he had all that equipment because he was a musician. And um, I, I actually ended up getting mad at him. I said, it's not fair. You can't ask me. This kind of stuff on your, de- uh, you know, you're dying, and I can't say no. So, right. and I said, and I was mad at him for it, and I told him that, and but I had to say yes, so I did, and it was entirely out of pity. That's the only reason I went, because I pitied him because he was dying, wow. and how could I say no to a dying kid like that? It just wasn't fair. So, I ended up at this camp up in Minnesota out of pity, and um, I had very little interaction with people with intellectual disabilities before that. My Dan grew up going to a school specifically for people with disabilities. And so there was some interaction from a distance there, but it scared me more than anything um, because he wasn't like that. He didn't have an intellectual disability. So that was hard for me to grasp. But I remember walking into the office of the ministry in Minnesota and there was a young man named Benji who was sitting in, in the chairs right where the secretary would sit. And we were waiting for for Tom, the, the leader, the pastor of that ministry to come out and talk to us. And Benji sat down with us and he just had this big, I can remember distinctly, I have a picture of him here in my office, his big smile on his face. And finally he stood up and I'm sitting next to my wife. And then I had talked to my sister and my brother-in-law who they had been married like three weeks into coming with us up there. So we could kind of sparse out the, the pain that was going to happen over <laughs> the next right. week. And, um, uh I remember Benji coming over and putting his hand on my shoulder and said, he looked at me, he goes, Do you need an ambulance? And he repeated it about forty-seven times and until we were all just rolling around laughing. And I don't even know why, but that was kind of my introduction. That's how bad you looked. You look so bad to him easily. Like, yeah, I must have, yeah. The, the pain you were in. <laughs> he just kept saying it though. And we still say that at my house. My wife and I say that to each other all the time. Anything's wrong or bad, we said, Do you need an ambulance? So, anyway, we went to the camp. I got a camper named Jason who was in a wheelchair, like my brother um had cerebral palsy, but he was really thin. he couldn't speak, so he would nod his head to the left or the right to say yes or no. <laughs> like I can distinctly remember sitting in the chapel service with him, and you know, just not grasping why I was here, what I was doing, um, the care, taking care of him, and all his needs was a fairly simple thing, but um. It was a fairly emotional process, and I kept thinking my brother was going to die before I got back home. Man. So anyway, we got back home from that, and about a week and a half later, then he died. So kind of that mix of t- that time in my life of a lot of questioning, uh, having a lot of questions answered by my brother and the situation he was in, going to this camp. Um, and then all of a sudden, he died, and all of a sudden, heaven was like a touchable thing to me. Like I could grasp what it was. Wow. And so it just – everything – at that moment, seemingly was about to change. We moved to Green Bay. We wanted to move way north, as far north as we could in Michigan to go to this artist colony up there. And we were kind of pursuing that. We went to Green Bay. And the next year, we went back to the camp again and volunteered. And that at that point, mom and dad were there, uh, my sister and brother-in-law, cousins, everybody was there. And it was a neat time because we kind of got to have a service for Dan with the campers there and I can distinctly remember during uh, sitting in a, a counselor meeting and feeling like God was almost talking to me that you're going to run a camp and this is what you're going to do. And, and you need to start something like this or uh, be part of this kind of ministry. And that night, Pastor Tom, the guy who ran the counselor, meeting, he called on me and you're supposed to get up and talk about what's happening, you know, with you at, at the camp during the week. And um, I stood up and I had rehearsed a minute and a half answer to that. And I'd used the same answer the year before because I, I like had a fear of talking in public to, uh, in front of anybody. So I I stood up, said what I – my minute and a half rehearsed thing and sat down to this same nagging voice in my head. This is what you're going to do. And I stood right back up after I sat down and interrupted them. And, and I said um, – I just interrupted. And my parents were sitting at the table next to me. And I looked at them and I started to cry. And uh, I said, we're we're going to start a camp next year just like this in wisconsin right wow. over michigan and i sat back down and not even realizing exactly what i said and pretty soon the whole it was i don't know 100 people in the room all were around me and praying for oh, me man. and my parents were like in just utter awe because out of probably all the people they knew in your life somebody being in ministry i would have been the last one right. um that would have ever made an announcement like that and so from there everything changed um you know, we, uh, found the campground, a place to buy a property that we're developing still 22 years later. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. My parents joined with us, uh, in the process. And so the, the, the end of this story is my brother grew up with this vision of, a, a community of people with and without disabilities, uh, that lived together, worked together, did ministry together. Um, and he had in his vision, one big building where they all lived kind of in unity And then my wife was an interior design major in college, and her senior thesis project was this facility that he had in his head. Um, But kind of the spirit of that never really left me. And um, so my parents had promised they were going to kind of pursue that after he died. So they did, and it became this thing called Dan's House And, uh, like all the money from his funeral went towards it and they had raised several thousand dollars. And, and then over Thanksgiving dinner, the next year after that camp, uh, we were sitting down, they were pursuing that we were pursuing this camp thing. And we started talking and talked about how foolish it was that we're doing this separately. Why don't we do this as a family? And so we just decided to do it together and really do the vision that Dan had come up with and that we would have a community of people with and without disabilities that live together, work together, serve together. And the focus of that, the mission of that community would be a camp. That would be the center of it. And and I remember we needed, we decided we needed a name. We started throwing out stuff. And my dad said, why don't we just call it Camp Daniel? Actually, first Camp Dan. And then, then he said, well, how about Camp Daniel? And we all agreed at the same dinner. And um, in January we closed on a property. And, uh, so my dad's taking care of all the finances. My mom was our head nurse. Um, Carol and I did all the programming and, um, we all worked to raise money and find counselors and volunteers and started construction and building and, uh, building a community. And now here we are 22 years later and we're building our getting ready to start our last building in March. And, uh, So, we have a 10 acre property, which we're trying hopefully to add five more acres. And uh, we have homes and we have a community of people with and without disabilities who live together and serve together and uh, help each other uh, with whatever each other needs uh, in the process. And we're only one building away from moving on to that multi million dollar which has all been debt done debt free right yeah that was one thing from the very beginning we decided if we were God wanted to build this community and build this camp that you know we were going to follow what he wanted and we kind of came into this to be honest fairly naive as to how none of us had ever run a nonprofit i knew nothing about anything i mean i was 25 years old and knew nothing about nothing um i was an art major uh, uh, advertising design that's what i did before i did this so i knew about art beyond that not a lot. So, um, we just, we never, we never started raising money. Really. We just kind of started doing what we do and people joined in and helped and money would come in through like just incredible miracles. And to be honest, I didn't even know at the time how incredible the miracles were. I just thought this was how it was. God (laughs) wanted us to do it and we did it and he provided. And so in that ignorance, we were really living out something that was kind of cool. Um, which now I need because I'm not, I wish I could be as naive as I was then, but I'm not. But we've continued to live by that same way. uh, God worked in that way. And we want, it's not that we're stuck in a rut. We've tried different things, but God kind of always centered us back into this place of, you know, we're not going to have debt and he's going to bring along the relationships. And it's through those relationships, the money, the materials, the volunteers, that's how it's always been. So now there is, I don't know, we have five weeks of camp and there's over 600 and some volunteers just for those five weeks, let alone volunteer work days. So like I come in contact no more people than I thought I would know in my whole life um, in just a year. And yeah. uh, like even you, I mean, it's, it's that whole same. I mean, it's amazing the relationships God has built. So as long as we stay focused on uh, the people that God puts in front of us and building those relationships, that's really the heart of what Camp Daniel is is doing that. And in case there's any happy lifers that are um, a little bit confused here, you rent a camp
0: 10 miles away, which basically is a camp with disabilities. And yet you're building this multi-million-dollar facility that is just top of the line. And we're just one building away from being able to move into the Camp Daniel that you've been building that has the group home in it at Hartley house and, and all that type of yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah. So we've been For the last 22 years, we've rented a campground that's 10 miles north of us, which is a very old, rude youth camp, and had our camps there. And it's we've tried to make it as accessible as possible, but it's not very accessible. Um, so it's a hard place to have camp in a lot of ways. And being that camp is the center of what we do, we also have a churches for people with intellectual disabilities. We do Special Olympics. We do dances and events and uh, many different things. And we have many missionaries who go out and kind of lead all these different things. But the center of it's always the camp and the concept of bringing in 50 campers at a time who have different disabilities, matching them up one-on-one or one-on-two with volunteer counselors who have no experience. So we do a little bit of training, but really you're there to be a friend and take care of whatever need uh, and develop this loving relationship. And something happens within that loving relationship that seems to change everybody. So it's a great process God's allowed us to be part of. And granted, we have we live at the campground we're building. You know, there's what, 13 buildings just short of a dining hall, which is an incredibly expensive thing to build. So it's not about just getting the camp done. It's about the process of building the camp right. and the
0: relationships that have come out of that.
1: You know, I spend most of my years in construction, but I tend not to be focused on camp here because God's been building relationships and doing what he does for 22 years. And when the day is Ready for us to be here? We will be here. So you should add this to your bucket list, Happy lifer I mean, if if you can make it to Camp Daniel
0: somehow and just go through and hear the tour every time I'm around, and I and Tony, you take people through the tour. I'm always there, aren't I? I'm always yeah. following around. I'm always listening. I'm always like, tell them this story because there's so many stories that it would take you eight hours at least, probably to tell them all. Yeah. But usually you t- you take the tour through in an hour. Sometimes maybe it takes two hours. But just to hear the stories of how this camp got built and the people's lives that were involved in building it or build, who they're building it for, the, the youth ministries that have come up for, you know, decades to just to work on that. The, I mean, the, the the tour is just so inspiring. It's so moving. It's so life changing. So if you're ever in the area, um, Tony, you know, he does, you, you do a tour anytime, right? Anyone shows up, yeah. if you're available, you'll give them a tour, right? Yep. And that's yeah that, they're pretty wide open there and and if you get a chance to come up during the summer and even if you can just come for a day but you know I've got some happy lifers that are interested in coming up they've heard about this whole camp thing and they said well could we bring our family and you know that's exactly who we want you to bring is your family and check it out and we love it for people at camp Daniel to to see the families and you know we welcome anybody that like to be a part of that I guess I should say and we but are you do you agree with all that stuff I just said Tony
1: Oh yeah and we're always open to, you know, any time of the year people want to come. We're, we're on a beautiful lake. We have beautiful buildings, a beautiful lakefront, boats, a beach, stuff that I rarely get to use because I'm here working. Um, we enjoy having people come and use all that. Come and stay with us. We have dorms. I, two years ago, I spoke at, uh, got invited to speak at Moody about disability. And uh, on the heels of that, I had a a bunch of, a couple kids and their parents who came up for spring break and stayed with us for a week just to go on vacation. Um And, you know, we got to do tours. They got to see our Able Church and things like that. So we enjoy just having people come and, you know, again, building relationship. That's what it's about. Um, So the last thing I want to share, if it's okay then. um, So I'm a fairly visionary person and I tend to have a picture way out in the distance of something that, you know, God has me walking towards. And when I say me, I mean me and anybody I lead or anybody that's walking with me. So a big part of that has been getting to know Steve-O in the last 10 years and the whole concept of Happy Life Studios and uh, the Happy Life podcast and the message that Steve brings, you know, about uh, just walking with God at all times and hearing and seeing what God wants you to hear and see. That resonated with me early on, just personally. But then the bigger picture of that is that the whole concept of Camp Daniel—it's bigger than just a camp named Camp Daniel. It is a community, and I feel like we're kind of the walking embodiment of many of the things Stevel goes out and talks about in churches. That we've tried to live that way. Um, I don't have a, you know, a Sunday morning church building that I go to in a group of people, I have a very large community around me and we don't lack for anything that anybody does on a Sunday morning, but we get to do it every day, all the time, um, with people coming in and out on a regular basis. Um, and so I'm excited that we get to be part of a picture of what Steve o often talks about, but the bigger thing is that this, not, not the camp, but the concept of people, with and without disabilities, people with talents, people with no talent, people, whatever kind of person you are, you deserve to be in a community and in relationship with people and that we need to get back to something that was, you know, when we read in the new Testament, we read about these kinds of communities and they weren't communities that just gathered to, you know, read the Bible and pray and, um, do a lot of religious stuff. They did life together. And that's really what this is about. I want to live a very authentic, trusting, loving life. And I need other people and I can't live the life I need without other people. And, and so I think that's one of our hopes in all of this to do the podcast together, to do a lot of what we're doing is that we need to connect with other people around the world and continue to see this happen and grow. And, um, so I'm excited for what the future holds.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. That means a lot to me. Uh, In fact, that's why I I was even feeling bad earlier. I was saying we, but, you know That's exactly why I say we, because that's how I feel about Camp Daniel. God sent you guys in my path um, because it fits right along with the vision that God has given me, and that's why I go out there several times a year, because we are the same heart. It is, it's the same thing. It's the same concept, and I'm a different person. I'm a happier person because of my relationship with Camp Daniel, with those involved with Camp Daniel, and it's just cool that I even get to be a part of that. So, Tony, thank you so much for sharing your heart. Heart and getting vulnerable like that—it's uh, a powerful story. I know how powerful uh, your story is, and how powerful you guys are. But I, I just kind of wanted our happy lifers to see it as well. So, Joe, happy lifer—that one's for you. If you're interested in checking them out, CampDaniel.org. Um, If you want to help them finish that last building, um, you can go to the website, right, and do something from there. Is that true, Tony? Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for listening. I know this was a longer podcast, but you could see how there's no way we can cut that down short. It's just a powerful story, and it all goes together. And uh, so thanks again, Tony, for being so vulnerable, open, and for letting happy life into your world uh, because you have made our lives so much happier.
1: Thanks, Steve. Steve A's.